place accountably. Well, what's this day, day four of session? We're right in the belly of session now, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Everyone settled in. Um, the title of this talk today is Meditation is the experience of being everything and nothing. Now a bit of background, um, I've been following a, a, a blog between um, American Zen teachers and I, they, I get that I'm part of the, uh, on the email list, so I, I follow it, um, with various teachers trying to define what meditation is. Now, to begin with, it's a rather impossible task. You cannot pin it down. Mm -hmm. But that's the human mind, isn't it? And that's the scientific mind. We think that we can, with a few words and phrases, we can capture something. You know, we put it on paper and uh, believe we've kind of caught it like a net catching a butterfly. You know, we can pin it in the, in the butterfly collection. Uh, meditation, that's what it is. Uh -huh. But human beings... I'll come back to this as the theme of this talk too. But as human beings, do we realise how hypnotised we are by words, by language? We are so under the spell of words and concepts and classifications like you wouldn't believe. Right? We're hypnotised like a chook on a straight line. Yeah, that's what we're like. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you may not realise it, but, but it, it impacts on the way that we live, you know, the way we experience life. And the, they're wonderful tools, um, and, uh, and uh, it's important that we use them as precisely and, and as clearly and as skillfully as we can. And if you're a teacher, like a school teacher or a Zen teacher, um, you need to use words to, as precisely as you can and be the best wordsmith that you can to try and convey clearly what you want to convey. But it's kind of like um, you, you never, you, you, you can't pin Zen down, you can't pin meditation down. So when I throw in my, my definition, meditation is the experience of being everything and nothing, well, what I'm doing is that I'm kind of expressing it in terms of the absolute way of looking at life, right? Where there's no gain or loss, etc. But where the confusion comes in trying to define meditation, some will say, well, it's not that, it's not the actual movement towards something, because that, that, that sort of misleads us into thinking there's something to be gained. You know, mindfulness is, is um, intentionally bringing awareness to the present moment, implies there's some kind of conscious subject there looking for something that it can find. A lot of effort involved in it. Even the, the definition I brought up the other day of Barry Magic, which I think is, is pretty good, purposeless awareness, that got critiqued as well. Because that implies there's something called awareness, like an eye that's aware, that goes out there finding things. Mm -hmm. But it's good in the sense that, that it's got no goal to it. Mm -hmm. So, whichever way you try and pin it down, you can't pin it down. Mm -hmm. But we can try and use words 
to try and get a, a clear understanding of what this practice is about. Because as we all experience, meditation and lots of it, you know, day after day, is the essence of what we're doing. And to point out the obvious, it's a non-verbal practice, it's a non-verbal experience. All I'm trying to do is put into words what my understanding of it is. See, that's what happens in, in a retreat. We all do this non-verbal meditation and then we, we come together at a talk or in Daisan as a way of trying to put it into words right, and get some kind of mutual understanding about what it is. But it's all non-verbal, really. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting um, comment um, or warning or challenge by uh, Shunru Suzuki, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Centre, a, a, a very greatly loved um, and respected teacher. He said he warned of the dangers of meditation falling into observation rather than immersion. And that's kind of the theme of my talk today. The danger of it falling into observation rather than immersion. Because observation is kind of like that metaphor that I used the other day of sitting on the top of the 100-foot pole, is that you can develop this, this very skillful ability of mindfulness and observe clearly what's actually happening. But there's still another step. You've got to take a step off that pole. And um, again, being precise with words, the other, the other day I said stepping from the top of the pole and showing your body in the ten directions, that's actually not a good use of words. And I went back and looked at the koan and recorrected it. It's manifesting your whole body in the ten directions. being everything. This body is everything. Everything is this body. That's the experience. Meditation is the experience of being everything and nothing. But it's also the step-by-step process by which we get to that kind of experience or understanding. Therefore, even in the way I teach, um, I follow traditional ways of teaching, you know, where people begin with breath counting, you know, and once they develop some gained, some ability in concentration to do thought labelling, so you start to develop some psychological insight into the way that your mind works. And they're, but they're all preparatory things. One, one teacher said that's not, that's not meditation, that's mental gymnastics, right? But we need to develop that, uh, those mental gymnastics in a way um, in order to leap. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but true, true meditation is just immersion in the moment. Um, we'll come to that a little bit later. I also think this, that it's true of um, uh, loving-kindness meditation Uh, which I know are popular amongst a lot of people. But it can be useful, 
But I've also noticed that there's people who seem to become quite obsessed with it and it seems to be driven by a certain kind of anxiety rather than a calmness in the way that they actually do it, where instead of just evoking loving-kindness, it's trying to be a loving and kindful person. It's like trying to constantly maintain the identity of being this loving, kind person all the time. And uh, I remember the words of uh, Robert Aitken Roshi once when he was commenting on some, something about Zen students or Buddhist students going on a big love trip, like trying, trying to be loving all the time and demonstrating that they're loving all the time. And if we look into it, um, love is a kind of latency which is there. You don't you don't go around feeling this sort of conscious sense of love all the time. Um, it's more like it's a latency that's there and it's actually a response and an action or words that come forth. If, if you are a loving person, there's a kind of latency. You're kind of calm and, there's a, there's a, and you're still and you're quiet and there's a kind of a... the love comes forward when it's required. You know, it's, it's a natural response that just arises to different situations. Um, so all of these mental gymnastics and exercises and so on, a lot of stuff which is done in, um, uh, uh, what's it written, in, in um, neuroscience, what, there's a, someone coined a word for it, neurodharma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where exercises are being developed to develop the brain in a way to be like Buddha's brain. They're mental gymnastics. They, they actually, they're fine and people get benefit out of them, no doubt. But it's missing the point, as Suzuki Roshi said, about immersion. That's why just sitting, open awareness, sitting in that place where there's nothing to lose and nothing to gain and there's no expectation and you're just aware of the fullness of life coming and going, that's, that's more what meditation is. It's not, a, it's not a conscious exercise to try and get somewhere. Then you're in gaining, then you're in expectation. Mm-hmm. See, the, the wonderful thing about just sitting and doing it for as long as what we are, is that we, we see so clearly how the mind is grasping for a certain experience. You know, peace, love, enlightenment, whatever. And there it is, working away as hard as it can to try and achieve something. And, and that's where we all start. But as we go through this process, session after session, year after year, that striving to, to gain something outside of the, me- the present moment becomes, um, you see through the, the futility of it. Mm-hmm. And so then you just drop into the moment as it is. It's kind of like the moment does the practicing. Mm-hmm. Rather than that there's this eye inside, you know, trying to, trying to get somewhere all the time. Which reminds me, I had a conversation with someone um, recently where I was interviewing them and this person said in response 
to something that I said. Um, I'm a very self-aware person. And I felt this kind of drop inside of myself. Because it seemed like there was so much I in the self-awareness. So much I in the self-awareness. I'm a very self-aware person. We created an identity out of it. And this is one of the traps of all kinds of Dharma practice, is that we, we do actually um, have experiences called insight experiences on the way. And sometimes they're psychological, sometimes they're mm, existential experiences. Um, and in Zen we might even call them Kensho experiences or Satori experiences. So they, they can happen, but then what happens so often and so quickly, oh, my insight, my insight, it was very profound, it was very deep, um, it was very special, you know, um, my insight. Uh-huh. See how the, the ego grasps, grasps around these things, you know, and takes possession of them so easily. Uh-huh. And, then, and, then, and then we're off the path. You know. We all do it. You know. um, it's one of the... Um, I think koan practice is a great practice, and I'll come to it more towards the end of this talk, but it it itself has its own pitfalls. I pass that cone, yeah, tick, pass that cone, tick, pass that cone, tick. Um, I've passed uh, several books of cones now. I must be enlightened. So, when it's done in the right spirit, it's a great kind of practice, but like any kind of practice, um, you, it depends on the spirit in which we do it. Are we, are we moving towards no self and humility that comes with that? Um, or does it just become another way to inflate the ego with a spiritual identity? Um, Chogram Trumpa, for all his faults as a person, wrote a great book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Or another title of it could be Cutting Through Spiritual Egotism. Mm-hmm. How quickly we, we take possession of experience. Now, coming back to this issue of the danger of seeing meditation as observation and rather than immersion, one of the, one of the paradigms or ways of thinking which um, is very much embedded in our culture and in our education, is science. And um, science has the kind of feel about it of a a subject, like a human person, using their consciousness and their, their skills of analysis and classifying and so on, to understand various aspects of life. And it's a wonderful thing. I, 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 I very much value a scientific way of looking at the world. But it's not the same as a Dharma way of looking at the world because, it, again, it's, it's this observational eye 
going out to try and understand the world. And um, it's like kind of, it, to use words more precisely too, it's the scientist or the scientific mind is conscious of phenomena that occurs or data that occurs. And I used that word the other day too, conscious of. Again, to be more precise with words, to, to move us in what I think is the, is the truer direction, it, our experience is not consciousness of things. Our experience is consciousness with things. Mm-hmm. Go back into Buddhist theory. Interdependent co-arising. Everything is connected to everything else. Everything is in a state of interbeing, inter-are. The, the, Buddhist, the Buddha's way of understanding experience, which he put into words, into this theory, interdependent co-arising, is that subject and object arise together. Not subject goes out to object. Subject and object arise together. When you look at the flowers on the altar, the flowers are looking at you. Mm-hmm. They both arise together. The, 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 uh, the flowers validate me and I validate the flowers. It's just an experience that comes up together. It co-arises. Everything is co-arising. Mm-hmm. Not me going out to it. That's what Dogen said, you know, delusion is, is me going out to the world, to the objects. But when you have the experience of being confirmed by the 10,000 things, as, as Dogen said, then that's, that's our experiences of consciousness with, right? connectedness, no separation. Um, when we're in that meditation as mental gymnastics, and it's kind of like we're in a dark room and we've got a torch and we're shining the torch on different things to try to find out what they are. So there's the bell over there and there's a cushion there and a piece of paper there and there's the Buddha over there. But if meditation is everything and, and everything's just arising together, it's like someone just turned the lights on and everything is illuminated. There is everything rather than just this piecemeal, oh, this, that object and that object and that object. It's like everything coexists at once. Mm-hmm. And that is, from a Dharma perspective, as the Buddha is trying to convey through his words, that's the experience he's trying to convey to us. Right? Consciousness with, immersion. And another word for immersion, to put it um, in a more human context, is immersion as intimacy. You know, Zen is intimacy with all things. If you're a, a conscious being out there getting something, then there's still a separation. But if you're, a, you're immersed in everything and that identity is everything, then there's a sense of no separation and intimacy with all aspects of life. The 
other day I was re- I was hearing a man on the radio um, talking about a, a book he's written on empathy, and it sounds very good. I was very drawn to it, and in his comments, he made a statement which at first sounds very very odd. You know, um, he said that racism is based on empathy, and you go what? Huh? How could that be? And then he went on to explain it. <clears throat> said, racism is based on empathy because what I do is I identify with my ethnic group, my race, and I have a fellow feeling with them. You know, they, they help me survive and they support me and they're in my family and in my networks. And so I actually have an empathy well with all those people, but it, it stays there. I don't have an empathy with anyone who's not like me. They're other. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, racism is a kind of, it is based on empathy, but a rather limited empathy. And what happens as we practice, um, as Joko said in her simple words, you know, we, we, Zen practice is about um, um, developing ABC. She meant a bigger container. Mm-hmm. So uh, as, we, as we practice, instead of I'm just identified with me or my friends or my group or my family or my child. Um, what happens when meditation becomes the experience of everything, right? And the light's switched on rather than just looking around with a torch. When the light's switched on and we see the experience of identifying with everything, then our empathy crosses boundaries. You know, it's not just my group or my religion, whatever, is that it, it, it pervades everywhere. You know, that's the natural um, emotional engagement that comes out of it. It's not just an intellectual thing. So one of the things which is peculiar to Zen practice is we do breath counting, we do labelling, we do shikantaza, which is the main practice that I encourage people to to drop into. And we also do koan work. And that comes back to this issue of how we're hypnotised by words and language um, and how it keeps us stuck in this dualistic, separate kind of zone. Koan study um, is a way of using words to destroy words. And um, all the Zen koans are kind of like the folklore of Zen. They're just these collections of stories and, and incidents that happened back in India and China and Japan and now in our country. Uh, where po- people had moments of clarity um, and so they're written down as an instruction for us to follow. It's a kind of a baseline for us to follow and keep us on track. And, um, and those of you who, who do it or have done it, what, to state the obvious too, it's interpersonal. It's not just sitting on your cushion by yourself, it's actually engaging with a teacher, like I've engaged with my teachers. So it's in a relationship. And, um, and in that relationship, there, there are various exchanges that occur 
where we're both kind to come to the same, the same point of meeting. And that, that same point of meeting is quite often um, something which is non-verbal. It's kind of like there's an R of kind of mutual understanding that arises, you know, when, when, when someone breaks through that calm. That's a wonderful experience. And so it, it, break, it, it, it wakes us up from this dream, this hypnotic dream of being um, entangled in words. But it does. And so the whole method of Cohen study is a way of cultivating that immersion in life. It's another way in which we, we um, cultivate it. So I'll leave you with a koan. And it's a variation or it's an extension of a koan which comes from a statement by um, Thich Nhat Hanh one of his wonderful practices. Um, and he, it goes, the sound of the bell brings me back to my true self. What is the true self? I'll leave that with you. <laughs> 